Greetings fellow captains and welcome back to Rank Amateur. Today in Rank Amateur we actually have a listener request and that request is for a ship that you really don't see that often in World of Warships, although it is in World of Warships. And that is the Tier 7 Premium U.S. Navy Heavy Cruiser USS Indianapolis. But before we get to the USS Indianapolis at all, let's get into World of Warships news. And, well, I mean, there really hasn't been all, really not much news going on. Um, there's been a lot of premium ships that have been released. Um, last episode, we touched on the uh, HMCS Yukon that has uh, been released in the premium shop. And I didn't really touch on the... I guess I don't want to say scandal or whatever, but kind of the issues that are surrounding that ship. And basically what happened is uh, Little White Mouse, oh, way back in like February 2020 or so, was told that the Wargaming was looking on making a Canadian battleship or a Canadian ship of some variety. Um, and so they kind of basically told her that they wanted her to design it. So she and her artist and, or yeah, her artist Choby is, a, I, think, I think his name, and um, they they spent a whole year like designing a ship um, called the Yukon, and it had they designed this wonderful flag for it, which looks a lot better than Wargaming's flag. I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, and it was it was basically the ship that we, or sort of the ship that we have. It's a Monarch, or it's based on the Monarch, but um, it had like a nameplate on the back rather than just being stamped on the back. It had like this grand nameplate and a whole permanent camouflage and things like that that was just beautiful. And uh, Wargaming said, yeah, that's nice. We're going to do our design. And apparently what happened was some sort of miscommunication. And uh, Little White Mouse has yet to be compensated for her time. And that that is, uh, yeah, no, uh, that, that's not that's not cool. Uh, so, there, we've yet to hear what they're going to do about that. I think they may have given some sort of temporary camouflage is, is what they're calling compensation for it. That's, that's not compensation, I'm sorry. But, um, I guess we'll see what happens with that. And, uh, there's also been issues with, well, Wargaming, uh, employees leaving because they're saying that they're not being treated well, and, um... That it's a fairly high stress job. Like if they screw up, they're pretty much just cut. So long time wargaming employee, and I forget his name. Um, uh, it's a veteran of um, some service in was it the U.S. Navy, Royal Navy, something like that. Um, was either asked to leave or left on his own uh, for some strange reason. Uh, probably the probably the miscommunication with the Yukon situation. So there's there's no room for error apparently there, and um, I guess we'll see what happens. That doesn't really have any bearing on the game, though. Um, we've also seen the release of the Tone, uh, or the Tone, the hybrid cruiser that's been out for a little while now. Um, and we've also seen the release of the Druid, which um, that's been out for a little while now. Just kind of a, if you haven't seen, it's a destroyer with guns only in the front that fires only armor piercing, has ridiculous DPM, and no torpedoes. So it's a bit of an interesting ship. Uh, on new sec or new ships like, that are new, uh, in, when this podcast comes out, uh, the Constellation has come out, 
uh, which or the USS Constellation rather, which is a ship that's um, basically a Lexington class battlecruiser. And it's not like the 1920s configuration of the battlecruiser. It's if, as if it was built and modernized in the um, 1930s and 1940s, which I'm sure she would have been. So it's it's pretty cool. It's a ship that we've been wanting to see out for a while. And Wargaming has finally uh, given us it. Also, it comes with this really cool um, camouflage. It's supposed to make it look like the USS Constitution. And I think Wargaming uh, Art Department did a wonderful job on it. And the permanent camouflage, like the normal one, is not is not bad at all. Uh, it's it's quite interesting. I mean, it, it's an interesting ship. It has basically no armor. Uh, it does have a it's a tier eight battleship with a twenty five millimeter or twenty seven millimeter bow, so it can be overmatched by sixteen inch guns and higher. Um, and it has torpedoes, believe it or not, and it has radar, and it can make it's tied with the Iowa for the fastest battleship in the game uh, that does not use a speed boost. Or without a speed boost. So, yeah, it's quite quick, but it's a bit squishy. So, it's a widely considered to be a good ship, though. Um, then, the Weimar has come out. And I believe this ship was supposed to come out when the Tiger 59 came out. I was a bit delayed. And I don't totally know a whole lot about this. I know it's a lot like the Mines. Uh, it's, like, it's like a tier uh, 7 Mines. And... Uh, it has absolutely ludicrous DPM, and I don't know if they nerfed it because I don't really keep track of developer uh, notes because stuff like that changes all the time, and uh, I just I just look at stuff when it comes out and then judge it based on how uh, um, how ridiculous it is there. Um, yeah, so we'll we'll see how it is. I've not actually seen one of these things, so it could be really really bad. It could be really good. Um, cause it's supposed to, it's supposed to be pretty fast. It has an engine boost and things like that, and has flat ballistic 1250 millimeter guns. So it's actually a lot like a big uh, one of the German destroyers that they just introduced. And she has uh, four triple torpedo tube launchers with fairly fast torpedoes. Although you probably shouldn't use them because they only have a six kilometer range, and this is more of a longer range ship, or at least it seems like it's designed to be used from longer range. And that is pretty much it for news. There hasn't, like I said, there hasn't been any changes to the game recently. Uh, there's, uh, actually, there has been announced that they were going to introduce German battlecruisers. And that's pretty interesting because uh, we've been waiting a long time to see an actual battlecruiser line. Now, they are still going to be classified as battleships. Which is a bit disappointing because I think they could add a battlecruiser classification. And then they could put things like the Dunkirk, the Strasbourg, the Richelieu, and um, some of the other uh, battlecruiser-esque ships in um, in that classification. But it's cool to see it. I wish, I or at least I hope they add like a full uh, British battlecruiser line, but they might not. Um, and then uh, so it's going to have like the. Is it going to have the Sate hits? No, I forget. Oh, geez. What ship is going to be in there at Tier 5? That's pretty famous. Oh, geez. I'd, I'd have to check. But they're also introducing a new hybrid ship. Yes, there's another one of those. Um, it is USS Cursarge, which it looks like a Montana that had a f that had its superstructure steamrolled and turned into a flight deck. It is, It's very disappointing because there's... There's no, like, actual historical accuracy that then 
Uh, it was never designed. There was nothing like that ever designed. Um, they had flight decks that were um, on the stern of the ship and on the bow of the ship, but there was never one in the center of the ship with guns on either side because that's just too short of a space for pilots to be catapulted off in their aircraft or to land. There's no room for air. If you don't hit that first tow cable or the first arrestor wire, there is there's no way you're going to be able to land and you're just going to go over the edge of the flight deck and fall down on top of the turrets. And I believe it does have 12 16-inch gun turrets. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's just a little bit strong, and the armor's ridiculous on it and it's got mass or not massachusetts um north carolina guns and it's got tiny tims and it's enormous and uh, yeah i don't know I, I there's no way to nerf there's there is no way to nerf a ship like that and bring it back to being balanced so we'll see if it gets released or not i have a feeling it will and it'll be super overpowered like the fdr and everyone's gonna buy it and it's just gonna ruin the game so hopefully Hopefully, um, they're able to figure it out. Maybe just nerf the accuracy to the point where you can't really hit anything or something like that. Or nerf the planes to the point where they have no health whatsoever. <sighs> I, I don't know anymore. <laughs> but that is it for World of Warships news. And stick around for the history of USS Indianapolis. Thanks for sticking around, and we're getting into the history of USS Indianapolis right now. So, USS Indianapolis was named for the city of Indianapolis, Indiana, which is the capital of that state. Um, it's a state that's in the Midwest of the United States. It's um, sort of in the Great Lakes region. It's actually uh, at the south shore of Lake Michigan. So she was a Portland-class cruiser built to treaty specifications, The one of the last, actually. Um, she was a Portland-class cruisers were the second-to-last treaty cruisers built by the U.S. Navy. The last ones were the Astoria-slash-New Orleans, uh, or New Orleans-class um, cruisers, and uh, those were even bigger than the Salt Lake City, or I mean the, not the Salt Lake City, the Portland-class cruisers. So they displaced 9,950 long tons to... Uh, she had a length of 610 feet 3 inches, 186 meters uh, uh, overall, and then a length of 584 feet or 178 meters uh, at the waterline. Uh, she had a beam of 66 feet 1 inches or uh, 20.14 meters and a draft of 17 uh, feet 4 inches or 5.2 meters um, mean, and then the maximum draft was 24 feet or 7.3 meters max at full load. The installed power included eight white Forester boilers that produced 107,000 shaft horsepower. She had four Parsons reduction steam turbines, or geared reduction steam turbines, and four screws. She could make a speed of 32.7 knots, and she had a complement of 95 officers and 857 enlisted as designed. And then during wartime, she carried 1,269 officers and enlisted. Um, she carried nine 8-inch or 203mm uh, 55 caliber guns. Uh, she carried the Mark IX version of the U.S. Navy 203 mils. Uh, she had eight 5-inch 127mm 25 caliber anti-aircraft guns and two 3-pounder 47mm or 1.9-inch uh, saluting guns used for ceremonial purposes only. And she did carry some armor, um, but not much. 
Uh, she had a three and a half to five inches or 83 to 127 millimeter belt. She had a 64 millimeter deck or two and a half inches. Uh, her barbettes included one and a half inches or 38 millimeters of armor. The turrets had one and a half to two and a half inches or 38 to 64 millimeters of armor. And the conning tower had one and a quarter inch or 32 millimeter of armor. 32 millimeters armor. Excuse me, I cannot speak today. Uh, she carried four float planes and had two amidships catapults, as typical of the U.S. treaty cruisers. Um, however, she was only designed to resist 203 millimeter uh, rounds in certain spots of the ship and 152 millimeter armor piercing rounds in uh, all the ship or over the entire ship. So she was most certainly a light cruiser. That was given heavy cruiser designation because of the armament she carried. She was not a true heavy cruiser in any way, shape, or form. I suppose other than the fact that um, she carried 203mm guns. And this is because the U.S. Navy liked um, the 203mm guns. They felt they were more effective than the 152s. And um, in order to carry the 203mm guns, she had to sacrifice armor in order to fit within treaty limitations. Which we already know that the Imperial Japanese Navy never really followed those rules, so their ships were well armored and well suited to be more survivable um, and uh, last longer in the heat of battle. Uh, U.S. Navy cruisers, not so much. Although they did have a separated boiler space, uh, you can tell by the, or separated machine rooms and boiler space. Uh, and you can tell by the funnels and how far apart they are. Uh, this ensures that uh, a single torpedo hit will not knock out all the ship's propulsion and uh, power generation capacity, which means that she can still keep uh, fighting. Although at a reduced capacity, she can still keep fighting and moving and things like that, which is uh, very good, especially when you're being at, uh, attacked by multiple salvos of torpedoes from Japanese destroyers or Japanese cruisers. Um, so, we'll get into the history now of the USS Indianapolis. So, she didn't really have much of an interwar period. She was launched, or I, I did forget to say the, um, specifications of, uh, when she was launched. So, she was ordered on, uh, 13th of February, 1929, uh, awarded on the 15th of August, 1929. She cost $10,903,200, yeah, $10, um, at the time of the contract, at the time when the contract was signed. She was laid out on March 31st, 1930, and launched on November 7th, 1931, and she was commissioned on November 15th, 1932. So she spent a year in fitting out, which is kind of a long time. I suppose they didn't really, there was no war imminent at that time, so they didn't really need to hurry up and get her fitted out and ready to go. Uh, so, interwar period basically just consisted of training and shakedown cruises. Um, she also embarked several, um, she did embark some of the U.S. Navy uh, higher-ups, such as the Secretary of the Navy, uh, Claude A. Swanson, and then she did embark the President, which at that time was President uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, several times for goodwill cruises, you know, all, all over the world, things that presidents usually do. Um, and that was, that was pretty much uh, all she did in the interwar period. Um, on December 7th, 1941, the Indianapolis was away from Pearl Harbor leading Task Force 3, and they were conducting a mock bombardment on Johnson Atoll uh, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Um, she was uh, tasked with searching for the Japanese carriers responsible for the attack and um, as part of Task Force 12, but they did not uh, find the carriers for the attack as they were too far away. So... 
she returned to Pearl Harbor on the 13th of December and joined Task Force 11. She then started the war participating in the, participating in the New Guinea campaign uh, as uh, part of the task force centered around the aircraft carrier USS Lexington. Late in the afternoon of the 20th of February, 1942, they were attacked by 18 Japanese aircraft, um, and all of them were shot down. 16 were shot down uh, by aircraft from the Lexington's Combat Air Patrol, and the other two were shot down by anti-aircraft fire from various ships in the convoy. On the 10th of March, the task force, uh, reinforced by another force centered around the uh, carrier USS Yorktown, attacked Ley and Salamanua, uh, New Guinea, where Japanese were marshalling their amphibious forces for presumably an attack on Australia, or something of the sort, most likely Australia, I think is what it was. Um, and then they attacked from the south through the Olin Stanley Mountain Range. The U.S. Air Force surprised and inflicted heavy damage on the Japanese warships and transports located there. And uh, they did lose some aircraft, but not as many as the uh, Japanese lost. And the Indianapolis then returned to the Mare Island Naval Shipyard for refit before escorting a convoy to Australia. USS Indianapolis then participated in the Battle of the Aleutian Islands. On the 7th of August, Indianapolis and Task Force, or she was part of, attacked Kiska Island, which was a Japanese staging area. Uh, fog hindered the observation. Indianapolis and uh, other ships still fired the main battery guns in the bay at um, the Japanese staging area, and float planes from the U.S. cruisers reported that Japanese, chunks, uh, Japanese ships were sunk in the harbor. Uh, and there was severe damage to shore installations. And after 15 minutes, Japanese shore batteries returned fire but uh, before being destroyed. Uh, tends to be bad when you give your location away to a ship with nine 8-inch guns. Um, before being destroyed by uh, the task force main battery guns. Uh, Japanese submarines then approached the force and were then depth charged by the uh, American destroyers. Um, because the U.S. Navy, even though uh, they had been surprised in Pearl Harbor, still had very good um, some anti-submarine warfare strategies. So they, some people don't realize this, that the U.S. submarine war, both countering submarines with destroyers and actually employing submarines, was very good throughout World War II. Um, it doesn't get a whole lot of credit, but, um, but their submarine war makes... Germany look like a sideshow and there's they were some of the best submarines in the world at the time um, uh, Japanese seaplanes then made an ineffective bombing attack and failed to inflict any damage and um, it, There was no real information on how many Jap or how much of the Japanese force was located at the um at, or at the island, but the operation was considered a success after no resistance was detected anymore and then they uh, proceeded to occupy Adak Island and then providing a naval base farther from Dutch Harbor on, on Alaska Island. In January of 1943, Indianapolis supported the landing and occupation of Amchika, uh, part of the Allied island hopping strategy in the Aleutian Islands. And then on the evening of the 19th of February 1943, Indianapolis was leading two destroyers on patrols southwest of Atu Island. And they were searching for Japanese ships trying to reinforce Kiska and Atu Island. Um, however, she did find Japanese ships, not a warship, but a Japanese transport ship that was a 3,100 long-ton cargo ship, Akange Maru, which was laden with troops, munitions, and supplies. 
The cargo ship tried to reply to the radio challenge, but instead was just absolutely demolished by the Indianapolis' guns and sank with all hands after exploding because the munitions in the ship were detonated by the Indianapolis' uh, presumably armor-piercing shells. Uh, through mid-1943, Indianapolis remained near the Aleutian Islands, and she just basically assisted uh, in any way possible, helping out with the island hopping campaign in the Aleutian Islands, which included escort duties, shore bombardment, and anti-aircraft screening. And then in August 1943, uh, she was uh, in refit at Mare Island. Indianapolis then moved to uh, Hawaii as the flagship of Vice Admiral Raymond A. Spruance's uh, 5th Fleet, and she sortied from Pearl Harbor on the 10th of November as the, with the main body of the Southern Attack Force intended for, uh, to participate in Operation Galvanic, uh, which was the invasion of the Gilbert Islands. On the 19th of November, Indianapolis bombarded uh, Tarawa Atoll, and next day they bombarded the McKinn Islands uh, during the Battle of McKinn, and then the ship then returned to Tarawa as a fire support uh, for the landings that were taking place on that island. Her guns managed to shoot down a uh, Japanese plane, and then they also shelled strong points uh, as the landing parties requested uh, firing support. Um, it w the battle was very fierce at the Battle of Tarawa, but it, the U.S. Navy and U.S. Armed Forces in general managed to prevail partially because of their because of the success of their shore bombardment strategies. And then she continued to uh, bombard the island until the island was secured three days later. And the conquest of the Marshall Islands uh, followed the victory in the Gilberts, and then the Indianapolis was again the 5th Fleet flagship. She participated in the bombardment of the Koala Lejin Atoll, and uh, she shelled and shelled and shelled and shelled the island, uh, suppressing two enemy shore batteries and multiple other um, enemy shore installations and supported the advancing troops with a creeping barrage. And what a creeping barrage is, essentially they pick a point where in some distance in front of the friendly troops and then every salvo they slowly advance the or where they're shooting at. So it's slowly pushing back the enemy um, and helping the friendlies advance. Uh, this is usually used with very accurate artillery, such as that found on a ship, and uh, is pretty extremely effective because um, any enemy units that don't move back uh, are usually just completely obliterated because of the caliber of the Indianapolis' guns. In March and April 1944, the Indianapolis was participating in, as the still as the flagship of the Fifth Fleet. Uh, was participating in the attack on the Western Carolina Islands, which is essentially just kind of a diversion campaign when they were uh, the U.S. was landing at the islands of New Guinea. And this is because there was a lot of uh, Japanese aircraft based at the Western Carolina Islands, so they could easily uh, interfere with the U.S. landings at um, New Guinea if they weren't suppressed or distracted in some manner. And the best way to distract someone is usually to just go and attack their base, and that's exactly what the U.S. forces did. Uh, carrier planes on the 30th and 31st of March tanked three destroyers, 17 freighters, five oilers, and damaged 17 other Japanese ships. Um, airfields were bombed and the surrounding waters were mined. Yap and Ulithi were struck on the 31st of March and Wuliai on the 1st of April. Japanese planes attacked but were driven off without damaging any American ships. Um, the Indianapolis then shot down a second plane. Uh, she had shot down a first one earlier in the war. Um, 
which was a Japanese torpedo bomber. And in total, the Japanese lost 160 planes, including 46 that were on the ground and strafed. Uh, these attacks then prevented any Japanese interference um, with the U.S. landings at New Guinea. In June 1944, the uh, U.S. Fifth Fleet was kind of stretched pretty thin. They were uh, charged with protecting the assault on the Mariana Islands, such as the raids on Saipan, um, with carrier-based planes on the 11th of June. But then on the 15th of June, Admiral Spruance heard that battleships, cruisers, carriers, and destroyers were headed south to relieve garrisons in the Marianas, and they needed to be stopped, otherwise that would really uh, slow down their assault on the... Um, and those battleships carriers, and these were Japanese carriers, by the way, um, it would, in the presence of more enemy ships, would definitely slow down the um, uh, U.S. assault on the Marion Islands, so they had to be stopped, but they couldn't withdraw super far away from the um, assault on, or the actual landings on the Mariana Islands, because then it would, the landings would be left exposed and could be easily halted by Japanese surface combatants. So they kind of split up, and one took the uh, a fast carrier force was sent to meet the threat that was coming in from uh, the north, and uh, they were able to not neutralize the threat, but certainly turn them back. And then the remainers, uh, the remaining section of the uh, fifth fleet was then. Uh, tasked with protecting the landings. And then a combined U.S. fleet fought the Japanese on the 19th of June on the Battle of the Philippine Sea. Uh, Japanese carrier planes planned to use uh, the airfields of Guam and Tinian to refuel and rearm, but were met with carrier planes and guns of Allied escorting ships. And that day, the U.S. Navy managed to destroy 426 Japanese planes while losing only 29 of their own. Uh, Indianapolis then shot down one torpedo plane, and this day of aerial combat became known as the Marianas Turkey Shoot, because it was so easy to shoot down the Japanese planes that one sailor liked it, likened it to um, shooting turkeys back home in, I think, Kansas or something like that. It was really kind of funny. Uh, so this pretty much wiped out the Japanese air opposition, so the U.S. carrier planes managed to sink the carrier Hero, or Hiryo, uh, two destroyers, one tanker, and then damaged many other ships. Uh, in addition, the other other carriers, such as Taiho and Shokaku, were sunk by submarines. Remember what I said about how the U.S. submarine war was really good? Yeah, there's an example of it right there. And then Indianapolis returned to Saipan on the 23rd of June to resume gunfire support, and then six days later moved to Tinian to, secure, secure, or to attack shore installations at the Battle of Tinian. Meanwhile, Guam had been taken, and Indianapolis became the first ship to enter Arpa Harbor since early in the war, because remember, Guam initially was a U.S. Navy base. Uh, and then it turned to a Japanese base, so they had to be recaptured by the Americans. She then bombarded Pialu in the Poalu uh, Island group, and then before and after the landings in the uh, Battle of uh, Pialu, and then... Uh, she sailed to Manus Island in, in the Admiralty Islands and then operated their 10 days just in general um, escort and patrol duties. Uh, didn't really do much. Didn't find any Japanese ships or anything. And then returned to the Mare Island Naval Shipyard in California for a refit. In 1945, uh, the Indianapolis was overhauled and then joined Vice Admiral Mark A. Mister's Carrier Task Force on the 14th of February 1945. And two days later, Task Force launched an attack on Tokyo to cover landings in Iwo Jima. So remember that kind of distraction strategy where the Japanese have to pick between two threats in order to, uh, so they can stretch the Japanese forces thin. And really, the the Japanese, there was not much left of them by 1945. They had spent a lot of their 
time, energy, and forces uh, trying to repel the American attacks, but they were running very, very low on forces at that time. Uh, this was the first carrier attack on the mainland Japan since the Doolittle Raid in 1942, early 1942, with the EB-25 uh, bombers that were launched from uh, the carriers. And the mission was to destroy Japanese air facilities and other installations on the home islands. And the fleet achieved complete tactical surprise by approaching the Japanese coast under the cover of bad weather. It tends to work pretty well, um, especially since radar has a hard time seeing through clouds and things like that. And uh, the attacks lasted for two days. Uh, the U.S. Navy lost 49 carrier planes while claiming 499 enemy planes, which is uh, pretty much a 10 to 1 kill loss ratio, or it's exactly a 10 to 1 kill loss ratio. Um, the task force also sank a carrier, nine coastal ships, a destroyer, two destroyer escorts, and a cargo ship. They also destroyed hangars, shops, aircraft installations, factories, and other industrial targets. So, yeah, it was a pretty successful raid. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that. And then immediately after those airstrikes, the task force raced back to Bonin Islands to support the landings on Iwo Jima. The ship remained there until the 1st of March, protecting the invasion ships and bombarding targets in support of the landings. Um, then the Indianapolis returned to VADM um, Mistures uh, Task Force to, in time to strike Tokyo again, because, you know, Tokyo's a pretty big metropolitan place, and it's really hard to get all of it in one airstrike. So this was on the 25th of February, and uh, off the southern coast of Honshu the following day. And then, although the weather was extremely bad for this airstrike, the American force managed to destroy 158 planes while sank five small ships while pounding ground installation and destroying trains on the Japanese homeland. And the next target for U.S. forces was Okinawa in the, the Ryukyu Islands. And essentially, the Indianapolis' task force was um, tasked with... Um, going back and attacking the Japanese homeland again because the Okinawa was in range of Japanese airfields on the Japanese homeland, and they couldn't deal with that interference from Japanese aircraft on the Japanese homeland, so they essentially just went and created another distraction. And so the Japanese detected the American ships and sent 48 aircraft after them, uh, and then 24 fighters from the task force intercepted and shot down all the Japanese aircraft. Indianapolis was then assigned to Task Force 54 for the invasion of Okinawa. And then the Task Force 54 began uh, pre-invasion bombardment of Okinawa on the 24th of March, and Indianapolis spent a week pouring six-inch shells into beach defenses to great success. Uh, during this time, the enemy aircraft repeatedly attacked American ships. Uh, Indianapolis managed to shoot down six planes and damage two others. On the 31st of March, uh, the day before the 10th Armory, uh, started its assault on the landings. Uh, Indianapolis lookout spotted a Japanese Nakajima Ki-43 Oscar fighter as it emerged uh, from the clouds and dived vertically towards the bridge. Because, you know, where are you going to target on a ship besides a bridge? Maybe, I don't know, magazines or something like that? Um, anyways, the ship's 20mm guns op uh, opened fire, but within 15 seconds the plane was over the ship, and the tracers converged on, causing it to swerve, but the pilot managed to release the bomb from a height of 25 feet above the ship. That is that is crazy. 25 feet. Could you imagine that? 25 feet, there's a plane diving down towards you as you're lookout on the bridge. And then it releases um, a bomb. And I did... None of the records state what size bomb. Maybe like a 500,000 pound bomb. So, 1,000 pounds of explosives coming down at you. You're going to crash through your ship and explode. That's got to be so scary. <laughs> Bit of a brown trouser moment there. 
and then they crashed to this plane near the port stern. Uh, the bomb plummeted through the deck, into the cruise missile, down through the berthing compartment, through fuel tanks, before crashing through the keel and exploding in the water underneath. The concussion blew two gaping holes in the keel, which flooded the nearby compartments and killed nine crewmen. Uh, the ship's bulkheads prevented any progressive flooding. Indianapolis settled da slightly down by the stern, um, and her uh, settling slightly down by the stern and listening to port steamed to a salvage ship for emergency repairs. An inspection revealed that her propeller shafts had been damaged, her fuel tanks ruptured, her water distilling department were ruined. But Indianapolis, no, uh, not, not phased at all, commenced the long trip across the Pacific under her own power to the Mare Island Navy Yard in California for repairs. That's crazy. So essentially, that, that's what an overpenetration is, and that's why overpenetrations still do damage in World of Warships, although they don't do as much damage, uh, because it's just... By virtue of something creating a hole in your ship, it still does damage to equipment and things like that, and the concussive blast of um, uh, splash damage, essentially. Uh, after major repairs and an overhaul, the USS Indianapolis received orders to undertake a top-secret mission, uh, top mission of utmost significance to national security. And this was to proceed to Taney and carry uh, tons and tons of enriched uranium, which was about half the world's supply of uranium-235 at the time and other various parts required for the assembly of the atomic bomb code named Little Boy, which we dropped on Hiroshima a few weeks later. Uh, so, yeah. If you read the book, it's called Bomb. It's about the uh, construction of the uh, atomic bombs in uh, World War II and kind of the Soviet spies that were in U.S. Uh, soil and trying to get a bomb together for the Soviets and the race to beat the Germans and the Japanese on building an atomic bomb. Uh, it's a really interesting book, but the USS Indianapolis is in there, and it has details on the journey. Uh, so the USS Indianapolis departed San Francisco's 100-point naval shipyard on July 16, 1945, within hours, hours of the Trinity test. So this ship was loaded and ready to go, um, uh, pending results of the Trinity test. And essentially, the Trinity test was successful. They, they gave the Indianapolis green light, they tossed the lines off the ship, and departed. Um, in, departed San Francisco at basically full speed. Uh, she sped a, set a speed record of 74 and a half hours, steaming from San Francisco to Pearl Harbor. That's crazy. That's like three days and some change. And an average speed of 29 knots. Arriving at Pearl Harbor on the 19th of July, she raced unaccompanied, unaccompanied, delivering an atomic bomb to Tinian. See, this is... U.S. Navy is a very good Navy, and they've they've always pretty much succeeded in what they do, but sometimes there's just some boneheaded moves that they make, and such as literally letting one of their heavy cruisers carry the most powerful weapon in human history unaccompanied, unescorted. You'd think there'd be a big freaking fleet around the thing, but nope, just unescorted. I guess I, guess I can kind of see where they're coming from because they don't want to draw attention to it, but maybe send like two or three destroyers with it just to screen it for torpedoes and submarines. I... Yeah, I don't know. What if it was attacked by a huge carrier, or I suppose they didn't really have any carrier task force left, but what if it was attacked by a few aircraft or something, and they managed to detonate one of the magazines? Well, there's one of your atomic bombs gone. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, and then uh, after she arrived at Tinian and unloaded the uh, components on the 26th of July, Indianapolis was then sent to Guam, where a number of crew... Um, where a number of crew who had completed their tours of duty were relieved by other sailors. So essentially, just they conducted a, a bit of a crew change. Uh, she left Guam on the 28th of July and began, began sailing towards Leyte Gulf, 
where her crew were to receive training before continuing on to Okinawa to join Vice Admiral Jesse V. Oldendorf's Task Force 95. Yeah, so this is kind of where things go bad for the Indianapolis. So at 015, on, so this is uh, basically midnight, on the 30th of July, USS Indianapolis was struck on her starboard side by two Type 95 Long Lance torpedoes, uh, one in the bow and one in midships, from the Japanese submarine I-58, captained by Commander Makisharu Hashimoto, who initially thought he had spotted the New Mexico-class battleship Idaho. Um, I don't know how, I suppose that, I suppose if you look at the Idaho, it kind of does, from a distance, look similar to the Indianapolis, but, I don't know, the Indianapolis is, eh, I can see how he mistook that, uh, but the Indianapolis has two funnels versus they have one funnel, but I suppose it's, like, literally pitch dark, so, um, the explosions caused massive damage, Indianapolis took on a heavy list, and, um, uh, so, th and this was because the ship had, it was overweight, it had too many guns and air and aircraft guns and things like that on the top of the ship, so it was very top-heavy, and so, it, while it was taken out of water, it took on a heavy list immediately, and then settled down by the bow, and 12 minutes later, she completely rolled over, her stern rose into the air, and sank. Some 300 of the 1,195 crewmen aboard went down with the ship. Uh, there was not enough time to launch... Really many lifeboats, only a few got over the side, and many didn't have any life jackets in them at all. And the remainder of the crew was set adrift, just, you know, chilling in the South Pacific. Uh, and then the Navy command did not know about the ship sinking until survivors were spotted in open ocean three and a half days later, by mere chance at 10.25 in the morning, on the 2nd of August, 1945, when a PV-1 Ventura flown by Lieutenant Wilbur Chuck Gwynn and his co-pilot Lieutenant Warren Co uh, Cowell and a PBY-2 uh, piloted by Bill uh, Kitchen... Bill Kitchen, that's his name. Oh, that's interesting. Um, they were on a routine flight and just managed to come across tons of men stranded in the water. So they immediately dropped a life raft and a late radio transmitter and all air surface units capable of rescue operations were dispatched to the scene at once. So, I mean, once they found out about this major uh, disaster that had happened in um, the South Pacific, everyone was told to go there. Everyone with no standing orders um, was told to go over there. And then uh, first to arrive was, or yeah, first to arrive was an amphibious PBY-5A Catalina patrol plane flown by Lieutenant Commander Robert Adrian Marks. Marks and his flight crew spotted the survivors and dropped life rafts. Uh, one raft was destroyed in the drop, while others were too far away from the exhausted crew, who really could not afford to swim over there. Uh, against standing orders not to land in open ocean, Marks took a vote of his crew and decided, and it was decided between the crew that they should land the uh, PBY Catalina in 12-foot swells. He was uh, able to maneuver his craft to pick up 56 survivors, and the space in the plane was limited, so Marks had been lashed to the wing with a parachute cord. His actions uh, rendered the aircraft unflyable, but um, saved many crew members. And after nightfall, the U destroyer escort USS Cecil J. Doyle, uh, first of seven rescue ships dispatched, used its searchlight as a beacon, and 
uh, instilled hope into those who were in the water, and the CCLJ Doyle and six other ships picked up remaining survivors. After the rescue, Marx's plane was sunk by the CCLJ Doyle as it could not be recovered because it was too heavily damaged by the weight placed on the wings uh, by having like 56 men on the wings. Uh, many of the survivors were injured and all suffered from a lack of food and water because uh, this is, um, it led to a lack of, or dehydration and a lack of, or hypernatremia, which is a high concentration of so sodium in the blood because um, the, there's not enough water to uh, dilute the sodium to a livable level. Although some sailors were lucky and they did found, find some rations uh, scattered among the debris of the USS Indianapolis. Um, they also suffered from uh, exposure to the elements and hypothermia at night, as well as uh, severe discrimination, or uh, skin peeling, so essentially a really bad sunburn. And because of the continued exposure to salt water, and um, bunker oil from the USS Indianapolis. And if that was not enough challenges for the crew members of the USS Indianapolis, who had managed to jump off the ship before it sank, um, there were shark attacks, too. This area of the Pacific was known to have a high concentration of sharks, and they made their presence known when they were sitting in water. And some men killed themselves or other survivors, or other survivors were in various states of delirium and hallucinations due to the, um, you know, dehydration and things like that and lack of food and water. And only 316 and the nearly 900 men set adrift after the sinking survived. And two of the rescued survivors, um, Robert Lee Shipman and Frederick Harrison, died in August 1945. And uh, this was actually featured on a 2007 episode of Discovery Channel TV documentary series Shark Week. And they stated that the sinking of the Indianapolis resulted in the most shark attacks on humans in history in one place. And attributes the shark attacks to the ocean white-tipped shark and tiger sharks. And, um, yeah, these are these are some pretty big sharks in case if you don't know what ocean white-tipped sharks and tiger sharks look like. And tiger sharks are known to be, like, one of the most aggressive shark species in the world. Um, they Those were the ones that mainly killed sailors. There were also other types of shark sharks there but they weren't aggressive enough to actually go after a live sailor they mainly just dragged off dead ones because most most of the sailors there did not actually die of um or who died in the water did not actually die of shark attacks usually what happened to them is they would die and then the sharks would just kind of drag them off after they were dead and it's a long situation of why the u.s navy did not find the uh did not learn of the sinking uh soon enough um, and essentially, it was just a failure of Admiralty to provide an escort to USS Indianapolis when they knew it was going to be traveling through submarine-infested waters. Because Japanese submarines were still very deadly. They had not all been wiped out yet. And um, that particular stretch of ocean was known to contain a high number of submarines. And even though Captain McVeigh... Uh, which was the commander of the USS Indianapolis at the time, was performing zigzag maneuvers and things like that. Um, the commander of the submarine, which sank USS Indianapolis, uh, which was I-58, later stated after the war that he would have sunk um, USS Indianapolis regardless if it was um, 
because he had close to such a close distance that he it was it was like shooting fish in a barrel. He could regardless if it was zigzagging or going in circles or just going in a straight line, he would have sunk it regardless. He said, so. This, since this was a failure of Admiralty, and Admiralty doesn't really like to be wrong, they blamed it on Captain McVeigh, and they court-martialed him. Um, he was the only, uh, he was the only commander in the U.S. Navy ever to be, he was the only commander ever to be court-martialed for the loss of their ship in World War II. And I can get court-martialing someone for the loss of their ship not in wartime, when it's under um, circumstances that are, you know, preventable circumstances, like a collision with another ship or something like that. I could get court-martialing a commander over that, but when it's in a battle circumstance where anything goes, you can't court-martial someone for not controlling circumstances. And essentially what they court-martialed him for were failing to order his men to abandon ship and hazarding the ship by failing to zigzag. Um, and she was clearly a charge on failing to order his men to abandon ship because, um, oh, he, he did survive the, uh, sinking of the Indianapolis, by the way, uh, abandon ship because the power was instantly knocked out to the Indianapolis when she received the hit to the boiler room, even though it was designed for the ship to be able to survive such a hit, it hit the ships in such a way that the flooding caused the generators to, uh, be knocked out, and, um, uh, so, the Captain McVeigh was court-martialed on the charge of fa failing to zigzag, um, even though the Navy had told him that he didn't need to zigzag, because the orders were to zigzag at discretion, weather permitting. Uh, essentially, just don't risk a ship in zigzagging if you really can't see well, and it's dark, you can't see well. So he's like, oh, well, I don't have to zigzag. Um, and the McVeigh had... Been the Navy had failed to inform McVeigh that there was submarines operating in his vicinity. He did not know that this was submarine-infested waters, and um, uh, he was re readmitted. He was eventually readmitted to um, active duty, and, and McVeigh eventually retired in 1949 as a rear admiral. Um, so many of Indianapolis's survivors uh, stated that McVeigh was not to blame for the sinking. That it was just. It was just wartime. That's just kind of what happens. You win some, you lose some. Um, but the families of some of the men who thought who died thought otherwise. And one of the letters that was sent to McMay, yes, he did get hate mail. That's not a new thing. Um, was Merry Christmas. Our family's holiday would be a lot merrier if he hadn't killed my son. Uh, the guilt that was placed on the shoulders mounted until he committed suicide in 1968 using his Navy-issued revolver. Uh, he was 70 years old. So yeah, if uh, something happens that don't that you don't agree with, don't send hate mail to someone. Come on. Ugh. Some people sometimes, you know. Um, but then eventually uh, McVeigh's record was clear in 1996 after a sixth grade student, Hunter Scott, began his research of the sinking of Indianapolis for a class history project. And his effort led to increase in national publicity, and essentially the Navy was just pressured into cleaning, uh, clearing his record. Because he re the man really did nothing wrong. Um, yeah, so that is the story of USS Indianapolis. Bit of controversy there, and very, very rich history, so it deserves to be in World of Warships. And speaking of World of Warships, we will get into the World of Warships section of this episode right after the break. Alright guys, we're about to get going on the World of Warships section of this episode. 
of USS Indianapolis. So USS Indianapolis is kind of an interesting ship in World of Warships. Um, it's been a bit power crept, but it's still a good ship, and I'll tell you why. Let's let's get into this. So we'll get into the specifications of USS Indianapolis, starting with the main battery. So she, like in history, carries a three by three. Uh, mount of 203 millimeter Mark or 55 caliber Mark 14s guns. I she carried Mark 9s. I thought huh, that's interesting. Um, with a range of 16.91 kilometers, which is actually a fairly good range. I believe the New Orleans. Well, well, we can compare this to the New Orleans. Actually, I'll bring New Orleans up real quick. Yes, it is a bit better than a uh, fully upgraded New Orleans with a range of 16.91 kilometers versus New Orleans range of 16.17 kilometers and a stock New Orleans only has a range of around 14.7 kilometers. So yes, it is better. However, it does have a longer reload of 14.30 seconds, which gives you around 4.20 rounds per minute. Uh, the 180 degree turn time is reasonably fast at around 25.71 seconds. Traverse speed is 7 degrees a second. Uh, it has a sigma of 2.0. Uh, maximum dispersion horizontal of 150 meters and maximum dispersion vertical of around 90 meters. So it's fairly accurate, and this is this is completely stock. Oh, by the way, I should make a quick disclaimer. Uh, this is a listener request. I do not actually have this ship, although I have played through the New Orleans, which is a very very similar ship. I do not actually have this ship, and I'm going off of a. Uh, um, specifications and things on how to play this ship, and I, I have um, people I know who have this ship, and so I've been kind of been communicating with them um, over, you know, how you're supposed to play the ship. But um, I do not actually have it myself. I'm just doing this because it was a listener request, and I enjoy um, giving my listeners, well, a chance to interact with the show. Anyways, uh, so it's fairly accurate. It's nothing super special. So the 203mm HEHC Mark 25 shell is a raw DPM of 105,734. Uh, this is also no modifications applied at all. Um, uh, maximum damage of each shell is 2,800. Uh, has an initial shell velocity of 823 meters a second. Shell weight is 118 kilograms. It has an HE penetration capacity of 34 millimeters, so IFHE is really not that necessary. Um, it has a fire chance of 14% as well, and it has a fires per minute of around 3.12. The 203mm AP Mark 19 shell has a rotten DPM of 173,706, maximum damage of 4,600, initial shell velocity of 853 meters a second. And you'll notice that that is a lot faster than any of the other U.S. Navy cruisers, including the Tier 10 Des Moines. Yes, so this is identical. That AP velocity is identical to the uh, Miyoko. And it is uh, also like one tick slower on the HE uh, than the Miyoko. So it is insane. Uh, the, the guns on the Indianapolis are very, very good. There is nothing wrong with the guns on the Indianapolis. It's it's the armor that's that's kind of iffy. Anyways, we'll get to that later. But... um. Uh, USS Indianapolis does have very good penetration on her uh, armor-piercing shells. Uh, there's a shell weight of 118 kilograms. Uh, she has a ricochet of 60 to 67.5 angles. Remember that is improved uh, pen angles uh, because normal cruiser pen angles is 45 to 60, and she, her hers won't ricochet until 60. But once you hit that angle, they will ricochet faster because the guaranteed ricochet is at 67.5 rather than having that 15 degrees of it may ricochet or not. 
Uh, she has an overmatch of 14 millimeters, uh, fuse, uh, fuse arming time of 34, or fuse arming threshold of 34 millimeters. So if you're penetrating less than 34 millimeters of armor, you're probably going to overpen. Fuse arming time of 0.33 seconds, which is standard. Um, and her guns have pretty good firing angles. The rear turret has 300 degrees of firing um, angles, and the other turrets can fire pretty well backwards. It's not amazing firing angles, but they're they're decent. Secondary batteries is um, nothing special. Maximum damage, or well, okay, so it's maximum range of 5.6 kilometers. Uh, they're 127 liter, 25 caliber Mark 19s on a Mark 19 mount. Um, they have maximum damage of 1,800, uh, initial shell velocity of a horrific 657 meters a second, reload time of 4.5 seconds, uh, 1.0 sigma, uh, 350 meter maximum dispersion, HE penetration of 21 millimeters, and a burn probability of 9%. So pretty useless. AAs, eh, it's okay on the Indianapolis. Uh, if your AA is not spectacular, it's not going to do anything, so don't build an AA on the ship. She has 32,500 hit points, which is kind of low for a tier 7 ship, actually really low for a tier 7 cruiser, uh, especially heavy cruiser. Um, she has a probability reduction on the fire of 30%. Um, damage per second on fire is 98, and total damage per fire is only 2,925, and the flooding lasts 40 seconds. Or yeah, fires also last 30 seconds, standard. Um, she can only have two floods. Probability is 30. Uh, probability reduction is 33%. Damage reduction is um, 0% on the floods. Uh, she has a DPS per flood of 81, total damage per flood of only 300. Um, her concealment uh, from sea after firing main guns and smoke is, uh, or her main concealment, I should say, I skipped that, is 12.32 kilometers. After firing main guns and smoke is 7.26 kilometers, and one on fire is 14.32 kilometers. And then from air, it's 6.46 for main, after firing a smoke is 4.06, and one on fire is 9.46. Um, maximum speed is 32.5 knots. Uh, it takes her 40 seconds to get to full power forward, 20 seconds to full power backwards. She has a power to ton ratio, or horsepower per ton ratio of 9.5 horsepower per ton. Turn her cycle radius of 650 meters, which is actually fairly tight. And a rudder shift time of a pretty good 8.4 seconds. So now, uh, one of the big quirks of the USS Indianapolis is she has the ability to carry radar and hydro. I do recommend carrying radar and hydro. Do not go with defensive A or um, a fighter plane because they, neither of those do anything for you. So um, uh, the detection of ships is 10 kilometers. You get three consumables. They last 120 seconds, and or real times 120 seconds, and each radar lasts a base 100 or 25 seconds. Um, and for hydroacoustic search, nothing special here. Four, four kilometer detection of ships, a detection of torpedoes at three kilometers, three charges, 120 second cooldown, and a 100 second duration. Uh, damage control is also pretty standard. Uh, she has a reload time of 60 seconds and an action time of five seconds. So I'm going to kit her out the way that I think she should be kit kitted out, and then I will tell you uh, what we should do to improve the Indianapolis' performance. Alright, so now they have a ship kitted out, I did realize that I forgot to talk about something, and that's the USS Indianapolis's armor. It's horrendous. It doesn't exist. It is absolutely horrific. It's like Atlanta-grade armor. And it's it's just thick enough that it, if you show broadside, you will arm battleship-caliber shells and get citadeled. So it's not like the Atlanta where you can kind of show broadside and most of them will over-penetrate. 
but it's not good enough to stop anything. A um, little while back, the U.S. Navy heavy cruisers got buffed because their bows got changed from a 25mm bow to a 27mm bow, which means you can bounce um, uh, you can bounce up to 15-inch guns. You can't bounce 16-inch guns, but that's pretty standard for a cruiser, and that's like unique to the U.S. Navy heavy cruisers. No other cruiser in the game could do that. And guys, I mean like non-premiums here, and I also mean that cruisers that... Um, I mean, they're icebreaker. They don't have an icebreaker bow, but uh, so the Petra Pavlos, yes, it can bounce your model shells, but it also does have that 25 millimeter section on the top of the bow that can be overmatched by basically anything um, that it'll be facing, as far as battleship caliber guns are concerned. USS Indianapolis gets overmatched by everything. Gets it's, if you get shot at, you can pretty much count on at least one of the shots being a large damage penetration or a citadel. It's don't get shot at in this thing. This is not a ship to get shot at. But anyway, so upgrades. It has four upgrade slots because it's tier 7. Uh, went with main armaments mod 1, damage and room protection, aiming systems mod 1, and steering gears modification 1. So uh, for that reduces your rudder shift time all the way down to 6.7 seconds, which is pretty respectable for a ship this size. And for uh, commander skills, I have selected it so that it's for a 17 point commander because no one really has like a full 21 point commander i mean there are some people but most people who are buying ships or listening to this podcast don't have a full 21 point commander they can just throw on a ship so what i'm going to take is i'm going to take grease the gears first then i'm going to take priority target and then i'm going to take uh a choice of three of the three point skills so adrenaline rush heavy ap shells and superintendent um, and then Concealment Expert is what I'm going to take, which gets your Concealment down to 11.9 kilometers, which is pretty good. Um, this that That is necessary for this ship. It's not as stealthy as, like, I've said Des Moines or Baltimore or Wichita or anything like that, but it is okay, and it will allow you to get out of situations that you don't necessarily want to be in. You really do have to use your Concealment. Um... Yeah, so that that is what I would run for a commander. Also, when you go, so that's the first points, the first ones I would get. Then I would go back and get gun feeder, uh, which reduces the time to take shell type because you're you're really using both high explosive and armor piercing quite often, and you need to switch with them on a whim a lot. And that long reload time does not really help you out there. Um, and then I'd come back get heavy AP shells, superintendent, and then. With your last remaining four points, I'd come get top grade gunner. Um, and that's going to help reduce your main battery reload time just a little bit. Um, what is the reload time? It is 13.16 seconds now. And then when you lower the ship's health pool, let's say to 50%. Uh, so your 50% health, that reload time then drops to 11 seconds, which is pretty good. It's close to Baltimore's uh, reload time. And that's the, that's the tier 8. Um, you could go and get Surveillance Radar Modification 1, which extends the duration of your radar up to 30 seconds. Um, if you want to spend the 18,000 coal to get that, I, I think it might be useful on higher tier ships if you have them. But, you know, if you're willing to do that for your um, premium ships, you could do that. Or you could do uh, Hydroacoustic Search Mod 1, 2. Would not recommend Defensive AA Fire Mod 1 on it at all, but that extends the duration of your hydroacoustic search consumable, which is useful for, um, 
you know, dealing with destroyers and things like that. So, Indianapolis, how are you going to play this? Well, most of the time, actually, in Indianapolis, you're going to pretend you're a British light cruiser. And you're going to fire that armor piercing. And you're going to pretend you're a British light cruiser because you basically have the armor of a British light cruiser as well. It's not quite as bad, but... Because you can know... You can... You're pretty safe against the other heavy cruisers. But once you get shot at by battleships, this thing tends to melt pretty dang quickly. And it does not have a heal like it should. It should really be buffed with a heal, but... It doesn't, so... You know... Oh well. But, um... You're going to prioritize those cruisers first. You're going to fire your armor piercing, which tends to wreck cruisers. It really does absolutely wreck cruisers. And then uh, then you're going to probably target those destroyers when they pop up, because this accuracy is pretty good. It's not the best at dealing with destroyers, because the DPM, uh, it's no light cruiser. It, the DPM isn't that great. Um, uh, and then if there are no cruisers remaining, then you target the battleships. And you really have to be careful with targeting battleships, because battleships know that the Indianapolis does not have very good armor, so they tend to prioritize you fairly quickly when you pop up. So usually you want to engage battleships over islands or in a target-rich environment where they maybe have something more like a more pressing concern to target uh, than you. And depending on the battleship, you're probably going to want to start out firing armor piercing because your armor piercing does do a lot more damage than uh, your high explosive does. Uh, but if you're getting a lot of ricochets and things like that, then you're going to want to switch to high explosive. Uh, that's kind of basically how the Indianapolis plays. It's it's an interesting playstyle. It's not a ship I would really recommend because it just tends to eat so much damage and it does not have a large hit point pool. So... It, not a ship I'd really recommend. If if you're into historical ships, definitely I guess pick it up because it it has a huge history. It's a very famous ship, but yeah, it's it's kind of a pass. Just if you want radar at tier seven, just go get yourself an Atlanta, because Atlantas or yeah, Atlantas are just kind of better than this. It's yeah, it has more range than Atlanta. It hits harder, but it's basically just a New Orleans with high higher velocity shells. And New Orleans is free, so... Um, if you're looking for a heavy cruiser, a good heavy cruiser that's premium in the U.S. lineup, go get yourself a Wichita. Wichitas are way better than this. It has concealment, it, or it has better concealment. It has... Actually, let me pull it up and we'll confirm this. It has better concealment. It, it's got a better rudder shift time. It's got a smaller citadel. It's better protected. It's got that 27mm bow. Yeah, base, it's got 11km concealment. Yeah, it's... Once you throw the concealment mod and concealment expert on there, uh, it gets very, very stealthy. Yeah, max concealment of 9.48 kilometers. Yes, this thing can stealth radar. So yeah, get, just go get yourself a Wichita. No, no, don't even bother with the Indianapolis. Yes, Indianapolis is a very historical ship, but the Indi but the Wichita is just better in every way, and it doesn't really cost that much more. So I would I would definitely go for a Wichita. Don't don't bother with an Indianapolis, unless you just really want the Indianapolis because it's the Indianapolis. Don't bother. That's that's my two cents because it. It plays like a light cruiser, but it maneuvers like a heavy cruiser. It's kind of sluggish. It's a big target. It's not well armored. It doesn't have a lot of hit points. It, it's got great guns, but other than that, there's really not much going for it. It's it's kind. It doesn't have good concealment. The Wichita has better base concealment than the friggin' uh, Indianapolis does. So just 
just don't frustrate yourself and waste your money. Spend a little extra money or and get the Wichita. Or if you're not really specific to a heavy cruiser, go get yourself an Atlanta. Now, the Atlanta's been power crept for sure, but it's better than the Indianapolis. A lot better. And it's got that radar tier 7, so you can potentially have radar in tier 5 games, uh, which is pretty powerful sometimes, even though short-range radar. So that is it for this episode on USS Indianapolis. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I like making it. Um, quick PSA real quick. Um, so you may notice that uh, there is no more ads, or at least no ads on this um, uh, episode when it's coming out. It If you're listening to this a little later, there may, may be ads on it um, because I have fixed this issue. But um, on the Mighty Jingles episode... The sponsor I had, which is Anchor Podcasting, decided that they were going to pull their sponsorship. So I am making no money now, uh, which, I mean, it's not a huge deal. Uh, but if you want to contribute, my the merch that I have uh, for sale definitely goes to help uh, support the podcast. And then there you can also uh, contribute. If you go to my Anchor webpage, there's a tab where you can donate a, uh, a amount of money that you specify monthly. Um, it really goes to help out the podcast and it allows me to buy premium chips and things like that. Um, cause this, I mean, this is really not a for-profit thing. I, I've, I think I've made maybe 50 bucks the entire time that the podcast has been going. So it, it basically just gets turned around and put back into buying premium chips and things like that for me to review. Um, I did not want to buy the Indianapolis though, because I know it's not a ship that I would enjoy playing and you should not buy it either. So if you uh, want to support the podcast, go and do those things. If you don't, that's fine. No, no hard feelings. Um, I'm going to try to figure out the sponsorship situation. And uh, if you want to have a ship suggestion or you have a ship that you want me to review, uh, go ahead and email me, rankamateurpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and then you could um, uh, suggest your ship or if you have any feedback or comments or anything like that, love to hear it. And uh, until next time, captains. Thank you.